and you pronounce it while as in smile. While. Yeah, while as in smile. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. All the way here on the tube, he's like, it's while like you smile. <laughs> I love that. No one's ever said that. And I'm going to go with that. That's perfect, yeah. yeah. It may be cold outside. Winter may be on its way, but we're here. As always, two parkies in a pod, Clarky and Cooan. Here to do a bit of damage in the parky world. How you doing, Cooan? I'm all right, thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling the cold already. I've got the sniffles uh, this morning, so you'll have to excuse my, my sniffing and my voice as well. And uh, you've just had a coughing fit as well. I'm yeah, Unrelated exactly. to the weather, but uh, yeah... Uh, we might not be on our best form uh, this morning, but I- I'm doing all right apart from that. I've got a little present for you, Dave. Oh, what you got? What you yeah, got? Well, I love a little it's, present. It's an edible present. It's, a, it's oh, the kind you. of present that you like. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Have a look at that. And tell me if you can name that fruit. Uh, it's a uh, an orange gourd. <laughs> it's orange in colour, yeah. It's um, a Sharon fruit. Um, Sharon fruit? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Not to be confused with the Kevin fruit. But, uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's got a few names, but um, I think it's from Asia. Um, you didn't get ripped off of that, that expensive... No. Uh, well, no, I did buy it from the local uh, grocers. It, was, it wasn't cheap, but uh, it's really sweet and it's in season at the moment. And what, what, what do you do with the Sharon fruit? You, just, you can just eat it as is. Uh, well, you eat the skin and everything? You can eat the skin. It's really sweet. And um, it, it's yummy, and it's full of vitamin B, apparently. It's one of those fruits that's healthy and sweet, so Perfect. hopefully you'll enjoy it. I've heard kiwi fruits are good at night as well. You have a couple of kiwi fruit before you all go right. to bed, that's quite good. Yeah. That's very kind of you, thank you. I haven't got anything for you. Mm, that's all right. <laughs> just just my adoring love and affection. Fantastic. Well, what's been going on with you? Uh, not a lot, really. Yeah. Just been, you know... Been busy with the families of my son yeah. turned 18, which yeah. made me feel very old. I'm looking at that massive uh, 18 birthday balloon. Yeah. How, how did that go? It went very well. Went to a nice restaurant. It didn't yeah. want a party, thank goodness. Yeah. Didn't want a load of 18 year olds around here <laughs> causing mayhem. Just but a family thing. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Very, very nice. And you put together a little. Um, Video montage for him. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. A bit of help from you as well. It, yeah, yeah. it was really good. He it loved it. It came out really well, didn't it? He loved it, yeah, yeah. fantastic. You got from, lots of home video from when he was, well, from when he was a baby, right? Yeah, exactly. Through to, through 18. It's funny, I have lo- loads of the first one and the yeah. second, second child, I haven't got that much video. Yeah. Uh, you do, You're you playing favourites, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's, it's, it's a brilliant thing. So. Yeah. Hey, Dave, I've I asked you before I came, actually, but uh, don't let me leave without that, those meds because I've, I've run out of my entacapone. And um, I don't think I'm going to be getting them till, till next week. I've made a bit of a, a screw-up with um, the timing of ordering my meds, so um, I'm going to have to borrow some off you. It's all right. Uh, I, don't, I don't think people advise you to do that, but we, we take exactly the same yeah, entacapone, don't we? So. Yeah, exactly. And I've noticed that sort of the lead time with this stuff is getting a bit longer. Um, I got a message from my GP to say that Rosalogen has got stock issues. Oh dear. So um, every so often the pharmaceutical companies put out a bulletin to say that there's delays and so on. So it's good to keep on top of these things. Parkinson's UK have a, a news section where they where they highlight any delays like this. But no, this was my fault this time. And it was um, poor, poor planning because... Um, well, that's just that's just me at the moment, uh, poor planning and carrying out everyday tasks is, is a bit of a challenge, which uh, coincidentally is the subject of our podcast this morning. Yeah, we're discussing dementia. In this episode, we're going to speak to Professor Ramona Weil from University College London. Ramona is one of the world leading experts on Parkinson's dementia. She's an amazing woman. It's not as depressing as you might think either, is it? We were quite anxious about talking about dementia, we, we were, we? yeah, because, you know, we, we've been putting it off. Um, when I say putting off, I just mean putting off the discussion, you know, just bringing it up. It's in itself quite a 
quite a feat, quite a psychological hurdle to to get your head around. And uh, um, you know, I've been having some cognitive challenges, uh, as my medication ordering uh, example there just proved. And it'd be good to understand a little bit more about that because a lot of our time with our consultants are, are based on the physical symptoms, and we don't really have a much of a chance to talk about the other side of Parkinson's. No, exactly. It turns out we're not the only one anxious about talking about it either. No, despite the fact that one in three people with Parkinson's uh, have dementia, and we'll go through some of the stats with Ramona, um, a lot of people don't really talk about it, either patients or the clinicians. Um, it's it's one of those topics that's, you know, I call it the big D. It's not really discussed uh, that much. Let's hear it from the professor now. We were a bit nervous about this particular subject because it's, yeah. well, well, I'm sure we'll get into this, but we were a bit nervous generally about... Um, the big D. And, and actually, you're not alone. Everybody's uncomfortable about talking about dementia. Um, it's like people with Parkinson's, but actually clinicians. So for quite a long time, I was uncomfortable about how do I raise that in the clinic? And it's there's lots of, and from the clinical side, there's lots of reasons why that is. Um, there's a kind of nervousness, oh, I don't want to worry people. I don't want to upset yeah. people. There's also, a, oh gosh, if I mention it, is the clinic appointment going to go on really long mm, as yeah. well? Um, and then there's all, even a thing on both sides well, there's no point because there's nothing we can do about it. Mm. And actually, so this is the thing. So everybody's nervous about it. I'm, I kind of like that you've just said that you didn't, that you were kind of putting it off <laughs> because you don't want to talk about mm. it. So, um, yeah, and actually the problem is that, so I'm, I'm a neurologist and I, I work with people who have Parkinson's, particularly where there are thinking and memory problems. But I also run a research programme where we're trying to understand how dementia happens in Parkinson's. Mm. And what I found was that, People were kind of uncomfortable about getting involved in this area of research because they sort of were, it was always the D word. So so much so that we kind of avoided using it. It yeah. wasn't really on yeah. the information sheets. Yeah. We, we, we we're Not that we're hiding it, but we yeah. kind of didn't want to scare people off. So actually that's motivated me to do a project, which is actually how we, I think, how we yes. got in touch with yeah, each other yeah. to try to open up those conversations because we realised we need to get talking about yeah. this. The output of that project... Um, but was was a sort of information uh, booklet called uh, Thinking in Memory Challenges. I think you're about to bring it out somewhere. Yeah. But the the point w- was, um, I don't think the word dementia is actually. We're well, certainly not on the on the title. I don't think it's anywhere. In, well, it might be in the in, inside in the detail, but it's certainly yes. it's not named dementia, right? We bring it in slowly <laughs> in the booklet. That's and mm. it's something that we really thought about because actually you might pick it up because you're thinking and you're not sure and you're worried. Mm. But if it said dementia on the front, we mm. thought. Well, a bunch of people would say, well, that's not me. And also, even if you are worried, you'd, you'd say, oh, I'll look at that later. Mm. So we, we bring it in gradually and we, we worked on it with people with Parkinson's and also with a lot of very experienced clinicians as well. And we do bring it in. So mm. it is actually mentioned a lot in the mm. booklet, but, but gradually. So people yeah. start to get comfortable. And the way you engage with, with people with Parkinson's, you, it was quite innovative, the approach that you took, right? You kind of, you made it fun, didn't you? Which most people don't... Th- Think of research as being fun, but yeah. tell us about the approach you took to, to that. So this approach was, um, so this was, we, we actually, it actually turned around the other way, that we were approached by a couple of artists who said that they wanted to do a project with Parkinson's and, and sort of, uh, they weren't quite sure quite what the project was going to be. And we ended up doing a project, actually this was a couple of years ago, where we used, we worked with them. We went to Central St. Martin's School of Art, and this was Anne Marr and Rui uh, Connell, and we did something about the kind of lived experience with Parkinson's. And, and we really enjoyed that. And the people, we had people with Parkinson's getting involved and they really enjoyed it. And we wanted to build on that. So when I had this problem about how do we talk about dementia, 
I've, I thought, well, I've got to work with them again. Mm. And this seemed like a really good way to, to open it up. So we invited them back again. And also we, we really wanted people with Parkinson's to be very much part of, of the opening up the whole project. So we had a person with Parkinson's on the core team as well. So when we were planning what we were going to do, we had someone called Janet. Um, and her insights were really interesting because quite early on she said, don't wrap this all up in cotton wool. She said, you're trying to avoid things too much. Mm-hmm. You can be straight. And so actually having her on really helped to shape it. Yeah, I, I, we mentioned that word balance before. A lot of things in Parkinson's are about balance. And I think delicate subjects are about balance because mm. I think there has been this tendency just to avoid it, both both clinician side and, and patient side. But uh, yeah. I think there are ways to do it, um, to, to start that conversation, get that sort of engagement that doesn't scare people, mm-hmm. but that slowly start. And I think the, the trick is the, the slow approach gradually uh, and not bombard them. There is a way to inform mm. and to engage from a research perspective. And I, I thought that that was quite a, quite an innovative project and quite an engaging one as well artists and i mentioned before i was doing one it's got a musical theme to it as well it was just great fun to you do you recorded a track haven't you i have with yeah, the yeah. shakes yeah, yeah, yeah oh yeah. wow they, they, yes. they, they've made a they've made a track out of my uh, parkinson's about my, out of my tremor specifically yeah um so it's you know it's just fun um mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of things in parkinson's that's fun right so <laughs> true yes <laughs> Remember, can I just ask you how you got involved in all this, how you ended up in neuroscience? And, and it's an amazing field. It's, it's probably the, the, the best one to be in right now, isn't it? I, yeah, I love working in neuroscience. I got interested in neuroscience and neurology because of this kind of idea of, of, of cracking a problem, a bit like kind of Sherlock Holmes, that, that you want to solve a problem. And, then I, and that's one of the things about neurology that I always found really interesting. But actually what I found with Parkinson's is that the, the problem isn't necessarily about the diagnosis. Make, making a diagnosis of Parkinson's sometimes can take a while, but actually what I think the, the really interesting prob- question is what's actually what's happening in the biology, what's happening in the brain? Why are people so different? You can have 12 people with Parkinson's and they'll all be different from each other. Uh, so it's actually about that kind of Sherlock Holmes element for me has become about trying to understand the processes involved. And part of that then starts to be about, well, can we think about treatments and do we need to also really target different treatments for different people as well so so it's through that kind of those questions that I got really interested in in neuroscience and neurology yeah I mean we always say every every person with Parkinson's seems seem to be different in in, in many ways but and mm. I guess that um, on the cognitive side that that also applies right yeah um we, we've mentioned both Dave and I on, on the podcast before that we, we both suffer from what I think is mild cognitive impairment. Um, the, the examples. Yeah. Well, when I'm at a dinner party or something, I, I'm, I'm too too beats off the pace. Right. You know, I can't I can't quite engage in times. So I'm not quick yeah. enough, and I find that really frustrating. Having mm-hmm. been a broadcaster and on telly and stuff over the years, and yeah, I'm, I was normally quite sharp, and I find that so so annoying when I'm just just slightly off the pace. Is, is that a sign of dementia though? So, good question. I don't know. I mean, so thinking of memory. Problems in general are more common in Parkinson's, but actually there's lots of different things that can impact on, on thinking. Right. All of us, as we, as we get older, forget people's names, for example, that you're with someone, you can't quite remember their name, or you might walk into a room and you can't quite remember why, why you went into that room. <laughs> so that's not dementia, it's not the beginning of dementia, that's normal. Also, if you've got lots of things going on, if you're maybe a bit anxious um, or for whatever reason, your brain is busy processing lots of things and then you won't be laying down memories. So again, anxiety, mood, those things can also interfere with thinking and memory. Um, 
it's really interesting though that you say that you're both sort of worried about it and also thinking about it and actually what i found with parkinson's is people are much more aware of their own thinking mm. than than in other conditions to do with thinking and memory so it's hard to, to know on an individual individual basis but i think that there is likely to be lots of things going on so it doesn't necessarily mean that, that there's <laughs> dementia happening i read, I read you're six times more likely to get dementia when you've got parkinson's there that's true isn't it there is one study that showed that. That's a, a Scandinavian study that said you're six times more likely to get dementia than the general population. Um, and and also that another statistic is that within 10 years, there's about a 50% chance. But that is just a number. And actually underlying that, there's a lot of differences. So what, what are the underlying risk factors in it? I think age is up there. Is a, it's yeah. a big one, right? Age is, is the number one. So the older you are when you're diagnosed, the, the higher the risk. So actually, if you're diagnosed when you're much younger those people are, are much less likely so to, to develop dementia. So that's probably... You. A good thing. <laughs> exactly. I, I was 44, you were 38. Yeah, yeah. yeah so mu- much, much less likely. We're talking about people sort of more in their 70s that when you, when you get diagnosed at that age, that there's a higher risk. Uh, men are at higher risk. So that's oh, a right. downside. Well, Sorry. Well, that's a man, yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, why is that? Uh, we don't know. It's really interesting. Um, we don't know... One possibility might be to do with that it's the connections in the brain and that they can become affected and it's to do with having a bigger head. Right. So maybe it's it might be as simple as that, but we really don't know. So, that's, so, so yeah. the, the old uh, joke about sort of men not being able to multitask is actually true then? Could be, although actually in other dementias, women are much more vulnerable. Oh. So it's interesting that in Parkinson's, for some reason, men are a bit more affected. So, so, so you're mentioning a, different, a few different types of dementia. and Within mm. Parkinson's, there's, there's your kind of a Parkinson's dementia, but there's also... Crossover to Lewy body dementia as well. Do, do you want to explain the differences? Yes. So, so par- if you have Parkinson's and you follow people up for long enough and they develop dementia, then that's called Parkinson's disease dementia. Um, you can have a milder form, and then that's Parkinson's with mild cognitive impairment. If I have challenges with sometimes my, my, my uh, well, now's a perfect example. I can't get the words out. Mm. Sometimes you know. It, the words are there, but they're just, just not coming out of my mouth. Yeah. Or, um, you know, challenges sort of reading documents or mm. um, multitasking, particularly where it's sort of multi-sensory. The example I always give is if I'm at home and um, the TV's on and Helen's trying to have a conversation with me, I, I just can't equate, equate them. I, can't, I just can't make sense of yeah. either of them. Um, is, that, is that more likely to be cognitive impairment? It's a really good question. So the... What I'd say is language changes mm. much less likely to be, actually, because language is usually um, actually really very good in Parkinson's. So I, I'd say that's much less likely. The areas where we tend to see changes are, there's two things. One is with planning, so organisation and planning. Mm. And the other one is visuospatial. Mm. And that's an area that I've become very interested in. So um, it's things like, uh, it's often linked with things like hallucinations or, or making mistakes with your vision. So you might see a pile of clothes and for a minute it looks like a cat or a dog. Now, all of that, all of us do that sometimes because actually the way our vision works is that we're always trying to work out what we're seeing. But if there's lots of that, then that could be one element. Um, but maybe some, but then even there's some, some more straightforward visual things like even having a bit of double vision, things like that can also be. A sort of marker yeah and blurred vision as well i find uh, particularly yeah. at night um, i have um blurred vision if, I, if i'm trying to read something on my phone um yeah you shouldn't be doing that at night by the way no i shouldn't be uh, <laughs> or, or let's say when it's just dark r- rather than night because you know we're, we're in the midst of uh, winter almost and um you know it, short days mm. I, I find um 
you know, and I've stopped driving at night for that reason. Right. Um, but you know, things like reading some text off a computer or off a book or particularly mm. off my mobile, I, it's blurred. That's the way I would describe it. Yeah. I mean, blurred vision could be lots of different things. Mm. So I think I wouldn't get very alarmed about blurred, blurred okay. vision. It could be things in the eye. And even actually some of the whole, what's called the autonomic function yeah. can also affect blurred mm. vision. So I, I wouldn't necessarily link it with that. And some of this is the medication, that I'm, the Parkinson's exactly. medication, right? Yeah. I was just going to go back on a couple of things. Please do, yeah. So you, just with risk factors, the other thing to, to maybe mention is there are some genetic factors mm. that can also can, can also predispose people. So, so and, and actually, we're really starting to learn more and understand more about the genetics underlying mm. Parkinson's. So some of those can 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 make a bit of a difference. So, so um, genetics in the in the sense that if if you've got um, uh, dementia in the family, or if you've got Parkinson's in the, in the family. So quite often with the genetics, you wouldn't necessarily know about it in the family. There's specific genetic tests that we're doing more in research mm. that when we find differences between people, that those genetic differences may be linked with a higher risk. Okay. So one example is something called APOE4 that was actually linked with Alzheimer's originally, but looks like it might be a marker in Parkinson's as well. You don't tend to test that at the moment, usually on the NHS, and it wouldn't come up in families. You wouldn't necessarily know about it in families, but it's... it's um, that, that would be one genetic risk. Um, you were reeling off some of the other risk factors. Are, are there any others? So I guess the, the only other one would be um, sometimes sleep changes mm. can be linked can be linked with with a slightly higher risk. Mm. So people who shout out or move about a lot in their sleep that that's often linked with a higher risk. But you can have that and not necessarily get okay. dementia. You, you've the, been doing some fascinating research about vision and, yeah. and, and de- dementia, using pictures of cats and dogs, I was reading. That's yeah. right, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? It sounds amazing. Thank you. So we got, we got really interested in, in vision, and part of that was that we, we heard that people with Parkinson's who couldn't read those funny capture images... That well, you, the, the list of horrible letters when you... When exactly. You, the, am I a bot? Yes, exactly. Yeah, the, right. the, the, the funny letters, that, the, and they're designed to be difficult. But... We were told that people with Parkinson's struggled with them. And, and f- I found that really interesting because I you know, had always thought, like all of us, well, Parkinson's is about movement. So why would you not be able to read those letters? So we, went, we thought, well, let's test that. But instead of taking funny letters and numbers, we took pictures of cats and dogs because actually we could design the experiment in a more controlled way with the pictures of cats and dogs. And we, pulled, we stretched them by varying amounts. So when they were more stretched, they were harder to tell if they were you a cat or a dog. You stretched the images. You didn't actually stretch we the didn't stretch. dogs. No animals were harmed in these things. <laughs> Just to clarify. Absolutely. No, we didn't stretch the cats. We stretched the images. And then we asked people to tell whether they were seeing a cat or a dog. And we found that overall, people with Parkinson's were worse at telling these apart. But what was really interesting was this variability. And we talked about that at the beginning, that people with Parkinson's are really different. There were quite a few people who were better than, the, than people who didn't have Parkinson's. Um, but there were a few people who were quite a bit worse. And, then, and this was the thing that I found really interesting, was that when we followed people over time, the ones who were worse at the, these cats and dogs images were more likely to do worse on thinking of memory tests when we followed them. So that's what we're trying to understand, is we're looking for markers of who's likely to develop dementia. And you might think, well, I don't know if I'd want to know. But again, this all comes down to, well, as new treatments are coming out... We, we, may, we actually do want to find out who's at risk because actually then we want to target the new treatments for those people who are likely to have a slightly more aggressive course. Is this when they're talking about biomarkers for Parkinson's? This, yeah. is, this is exactly what it would be? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a really important and very interesting area that's actually opening up. Even, even just this summer, there's been some quite exciting elements. There's been a new, um, a new blood test, actually, that could be 
until now, most of the biomarkers have been um, using spinal fluid, which is a bit invasive, but that could be developed into a blood test. And as we have better biomarkers, then we can really be confident about the diagnosis, which is helpful, but also we can start to stratify people, which means we can actually... When we when we do clinical trials, we can target the tra- trials for the right people. But is it, wasn't there a breakthrough this year in, in terms of sort of using uh, vision data as as a as a biomarker? I'm, I'm talking about the the exercise, the research activity that took data from Moorfields Hospital. Yes, yeah. So um, so I I'm actually part of that study. I'm a sort of in a very small way. Um, so that study looked at retinal imaging and they from a very, very large number of people. And they showed that there were differences in people even very, very early on. I think the important thing, and the authors of, of that paper have, have made clear, is the differences were tiny. So being able to take a retinal image and, and say, okay, you're at more risk than someone else for one individual person, I think we're quite a way off from that at the moment. But what it did say is that we can find these changes even in the retina very early on. So visual changes do seem to be important. And, and you're talking about retinal imaging. Is that the same sort of... If I go to an eye test at Specsavers, is it the same sort of um, imaging equipment? Or? So the sort of imaging equipment is called optical coherence tomography, or OCT. They do have them at Specsavers. Okay. So they do do them. But they were looking at... They were measuring the, 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 the thickness of the layers at the back of the retina. And that wouldn't normally be done by Specsavers, but they have got the equipment... Where, okay. which means it could be done. Is this a lack of dopamine that's causing this problem in the eye then? So that's such a good question. N- no one really knows. And actually, you do have some dopamine receptors and it, you do have dopamine in the retina as well. And I've also had some patients tell me that when they take their dopamine, they do see a difference. Not everyone notices that, but I have do heard people say that. David? I don't think I do, no. No. I, I find that sort of, as I wear off and um, later in the day, my, my, that, that blurred vision I was describing... Uh, comes on yeah so i think it in part maybe dopamine but actually i think it's also to do with um with actually nerve connections and there may be differences in proteins that build up and actually nerve connections coming from the brain and then tracking back into the retina so i think it as with parkinson's it's always more than one thing and i think the things changes that we're seeing in the retina and the vision are also more than one thing neuroimaging is an amazing thing as well it's it's, it's opened a whole new world hasn't it yes so especially, so neuroimaging, so one, a lot of the work that we're doing in our research is looking at MRI scanning. And if you have a hospital MRI scan and you have Parkinson's, you'll, most people are told it's, an, it's normal. So hospital level MRI scans at the moment aren't really sensitive enough to pick up differences. But we're now using MRI, there's some quite advanced techniques where we can look at differences in brain tissue. There's a few different things that we can do. Um, one of them, actually, there's a way that you can look at a bit like a DAT scan that a lot of people have with Parkinson's. We've both had a DAT scan. Yeah. First thing you get, isn't it? Yeah, a DAT scan. yeah, so you can now have a version of a DAT scan using an MRI scan. So you can actually look at changes that can pick up that are re- equ- equivalent to what you find in a DAT scan on an MRI. D- does that mean the availability of a DAT scan is, is, is more now? Because, you know, when, when we first got diagnosed, the DAT scans were, it felt like they were relatively rare. So it's not yet going to replace DAT scans. Oh, I see. Um, DAT scans are available in, in lots of places. You don't always need to have one to make your diagnosis, so not all clinicians do them. Um, but the other MRI changes are actually looking at changes in the wiring connections in the brain and also in the iron that builds up in tissues. And, that's, and by actually being able to measure the changes in the tissue itself, we think that that could, that could even be a biomarker as well for Parkinson's. Light and colours, yeah. how, how do they play a role here? That's, so 
actually your ability to tell apart colours also can change in Parkinson's. And there's a big group in, in Canada, in Montreal, who looked at people's colour vision and how that changed over time. And they also showed a relationship with, well, predicting dementia as well. So it was another one of the visual changes that may be important. Of course, being colourblind is quite separate. Mm. So I think if you're colourblind by birth, mm. that would be a separate thing. Mm. But it's more subtle changes in colour vision. And um, a lot of people with Parkinson's have problems with um, judging distances. Mm. Um, I read somewhere that that's also a factor in, 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 in Parkinson's dementia. Yeah, so, so judging distances is, is, a, is a visual task. And it's a part of the visual task, if you think that when we any visual task we do, we have information from the eyes and it then goes into the brain and the brain has to then process that information. So that would be a brain processing visual task. And absolutely, that's one of the visuospatial changes that is particularly common in Parkinson's dementia. Um, and that's why I always ask about driving in people where I'm worried about dementia, because actually if they can't make judgments about the driving, then, then that would be... Mm. Something that, that that would be a worry about them actually yeah. carrying on driving. It, 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 interesting this conversation because um, it, Parkinson's is just often referred to or, or comes under um, a movement disorder. Mm. But nothing we've spoken about so far. Is I wish it was just a movement disorder. We've got yeah. everything, haven't we? So everything's going wrong with us. So. Don't you think we yeah. do the, the condition a disservice by just limiting it to to a movement disorder? I, I, I presume you're a movement disorder specialist, are you not? Well, I'm, I'm actually a bit of both. I'm a movement and cognitive disorder specialist. I kind of have a, a foot in each group. Right. Um, I think part of it is that some of the most obvious features of Parkinson's are the motor, motor features and the movement features. But we've also got much better at treating those. So mm. we've got good, really good drugs. And then there's techniques like deep brain stimulation that are really effective and can really improve the movement. Mm. So I think some of these other symptoms have, have really come, become more obvious as we've got better at the movement side. Um, and also, yeah, absolutely, it's a multi-system condition. So it affects thinking and memory, mood. We've talked about anxiety, vision, but also all sorts of other body systems like blood pressure and you know, going to the toilet, all those things as well. And so actually, I think that, well, in my, in my clinic, we take a really sort of 360 approach, because actually, if you think about all of those different things, and often make small changes, you can make quite a big difference to people's lives. Can I ask you about the difference between dementia and, and Alzheimer's as well? Yes. That, that, that's very yeah. confusing for people on the outside. Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that. And I also want, wanted to bring in the dementia with Lewy bodies that you mentioned. Yeah. So dementia is a very general term. And it just means that essentially your thinking is affected so that you can't really do day-to-day tasks. And the commonest type of dementia is Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's tends to affect memory. So that's where people you know, can't, can't remember things, essentially. Parkinson's um, can cause a dementia. And then there's a related condition called dementia with Lewy bodies, which is very similar to Parkinson's can also have some of the movement aspects of Parkinson's. The things they have in common are that the thinking and memory changes tend to be about what we've talked about, planning and also visuospatial and also sort of attention to things. The key difference between Parkinson's dementia and dementia with Lewy bodies is the timing of when the dementia starts. So if the dementia comes first and then you develop things that look a bit like Parkinson's, then that's dementia with Lewy bodies. Or if the dementia is within one year of the movement, again, that's dementia with Lewy bodies. So it, and it, it's quite confusing. Mm. Um, in a way, it's helpful to, I mean, you can actually group them into, so there's actually an umbrella term called Lewy body dementia, 
which is even more confusing. Yeah. It sounds so similar. Yeah. I just want to say, I didn't make this up. <laughs> um, so the umbrella term Lewy body dementia refers to both Parkinson's dementia and dementia with Lewy bodies. And sometimes that's helpful because they have got so much in common. So it's useful to have this umbrella term. But sometimes it's not, right? In terms of just people's understanding... Um, yeah. say maybe calling it movement disorder a lot of the things that we the challenge that we go through day to day have nothing to do with movement it's, it's about that part of the challenge in terms of people's understanding dementia yeah. the, the terminology that we're using here yeah and i think also people being precise about it so actually that which is what that's why i wanted to, to explain it that it, it can refer to both which can be helpful because there's a lot overlapping but actually dementia with Lewy bodies is a very specific thing and it, it means actually that the dementia has really come first and been really forefront so um but I think a lot of this, we talked at the beginning about making people more aware, and that includes healthcare professionals as well, and people being sort of careful about how they use the, the right words for things, um, but also not being frightened to talk about dementia, because there are things that we can do, and it isn't always dementia. Sometimes if you're worried about your thinking, there might be, it might be that you're, maybe you didn't get very good sleep the night before, mm-hmm. or there's some anxiety going on. So actually, those things can, are, are quite treatable. So it's worth thinking about thinking in memory so that we can address all the different issues. It can be heartbreaking watching someone going through dementia. Have you got used to it now, dealing with so many people, or are you still affected by it? It's always upsetting, and, it, and it's upsetting to see people having a degenerative condition. And, and that's what motivates me to try to understand it better and to try to bring treatments to people as well. Um, you, you, never get, you never get used to it. You never, you know, I'm all, I, I always do feel, I do feel upset. Um, but yes, I think that's what drives me. And it also drives me to think about treatments, but also about what can we do to improve this? Because actually there are things that can be done. So I think it's it's also quite motivating. Did you have any personal uh, link to dementia? That's a really good question. I mean, I, only, only sort of more generally. So my grandfather had... He, I wasn't told officially because I was much younger, but I think my grandfather had Alzheimer's. So him asking me the same questions again um, and then being surprised about things. So that's always quite upsetting. You, you weren't told officially that it wasn't a subject that was discussed in, in your family? Well, we were told it was dementia, but at, at the time it, was it wasn't clear. Was it Alzheimer's or oh, was it some other form? And, and is there a lot of un, undiagnosed cases of dementia? Yes, and, and we often find that because we we often ask about family trees, and when you look into people's family trees, people will often say, "Oh, I had a grandparent with dementia, but we're not really sure what it was." I think now we understand dementia much better, so actually we're 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 better at actually making a diagnosis and being confident about what what type of dementia people have, and and it also matters because the treatment and the approaches will, will differ. Mm. You mentioned about. Um sort of healthcare professionals and their understanding. Mm. I saw some stats somewhere, I can't remember what the number was, but basically saying there's a lot of misunderstanding uh, or or lack of understanding amongst healthcare professionals as to how they should approach and treat uh, Parkinson's patients with with dementia. So it's a lot of the research you're doing not only target well, it's addressing partly addressing that as well, right? Yeah. So, so that I think where you probably read that is that Parkinson's UK came mm. out with a really good report where they interviewed lots of lots of people. So they interviewed pe- people with Parkinson's and their and their families, and also healthcare professionals. And it was a it was a very small proportion that felt confident. It was around fourteen percent of people who were fourteen. Health- I think it was fourteen percent. Eighty-six um, percent of healthcare professionals weren't confident. We're not confident. Wow! And and that's really driven Parkinson's UK to say we need to do something about this. Um, so I'm I'm really glad that they're thinking about it. I mean, I'm 
um, kind of working with them. So our resources that they've they've made them fully available, so they're free to download on their website. Um, so hopefully that will go in some way. But there are also there are lots of different initiatives that they're taking on to really bring this bring this up to the top of the agenda, so that healthcare professionals can feel more more confident about dealing with with Parkinson's dementia and think and addressing it in the clinic. Uh, is that lack of confidence? leading to them not raising it in the in the clinic today do you think so i think there's lots of different reasons for not for not mentioning it some of it might be lack of confidence some some of it is about clinics being being very busy um some of it is about there's lots of other things to talk about so maybe making sure that you address the the movement and or maybe depression so i think there are a lot of different factors but if we can do any small thing that we can do to improve the confidence improve what we know about parkinson's dementia um, then I think that's helpful. And part of what we did with these booklets was that we we actually had one, there was one for people with Parkinson's, but we also had one for healthcare professionals where we take people through how you can make a diagnosis, how you can recognise it, and also the very practical things that that, that that can be done, so which drugs could be useful, and, and also this kind of more 360 approach to okay. try to address other so, factors. So which drugs are useful then? So the main drugs that we use in Parkinson's dementia are very similar to the drugs that are used in Alzheimer's as well. So they're a group of drugs called cholinesterase inhibitors. Um, and the, the main two are donepazil and rivastigmine. And uh, donepazil comes as a, as a tablet and uh, rivastigmine comes as a capsule and as a patch. Um, and actually, they can be quite effective. They, um, in, they, off, they can be even more effective in Parkinson's than they are in Alzheimer's, actually, we often find. Um, there are some other drugs as well. So there's something called galantamine that's sort of within that group and one that works a bit differently called memantine. And there's actually a trial at the moment um, that's testing whether if you're on denepazil or rivastigmine and you add in memantine, is it even better or does it make no, make no difference? So that's a trial called cobalt. Um, and there, there's actually around 30 different centres around the UK if people want to get involved in that trial. Is there anything you can do now that might delay dementia or, or stop yeah. dementia anything we, we can do as parkies yes absolutely i think the two main things that i would say one of them is exercise so exercise from early on so there's really good evidence uh, particularly from from the dutch groups people like baz bloom have shown that if you do exercise it improves the motor features but actually they're starting to come out that it, it probably also helps the thinking and memory changes as well so regular exercise, Parkinson's UK recommend half an hour, five days a week. So we're really, it's a proper commitment. Um, so one of them is exercise. And the other one is um, controlling vascular risk factors. So that's the, all those things that protect the heart will also protect the brain. So making sure the blood pressure is well controlled. If your cholesterol is high, think about going on a treatment for that. And that's the sort of thing you can talk about with your GP. What can I do to improve my vascular risk factors? Cut down red knees and things like that. So there's less that we know about diet, actually. Um, so people talk about a Mediterranean diet, but I think there's less known about that. But what is clear is um, exercise. And it should be whatever you like. No one really knows which type. And I, and I always think if you like it, you'll do it. Yeah. So it's got to fit in with your, with your life. Yeah, I mean, exercise comes up in every episode of the podcast that we have. And, and wow. uh, yeah. Yeah, if, if you like it, uh, you'll do it. Uh, I think that's quite key, especially when mm. you're dealing with apathy. Can, yeah. I, can I ask you what's exciting you about your research at the moment? Is there something you're thinking, this is brilliant, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about this? Yeah, so the thing that we're just about to start a new project, um, and 
I talked about the differences between people and this project is focused on those differences. Until now, I've been looking at MRI scans to try to understand the changes in the brains of people with Parkinson's. But we know that protein builds up in people's brains and the protein that we talk about a lot is alpha-synuclein. But actually, other proteins build up as well. So amyloid and tau are two other proteins. So the project that we're doing now that I'm really excited about is linking the proteins that build up in the brain with MRI scans. So, And we can measure those proteins using a different scan called a PET scan um, and also using some blood tests as well. So we're about to, we've just got some funding from the Wellcome Trust to do this and we're about to start that project, sort of bringing pe- people in um, from January, February this coming year. So, And we're looking for volunteers, so if people wanted to come along... How, how would they get involved? If, if someone wants to get involved, how can they get in touch? They can get in touch with me. Maybe you can put my yes. contact Shitty. details. Yes. Put on the yeah. show notes, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. So it, 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 would be, it would mean coming along to UCL mm. and um, having... It's quite a few different visits. It's four or five different visits. Um, and then having an MRI scan, PET scans and blood tests. Mm. And yes, we are looking for, for people mm. if they want to come along. And I, get on board. I, yes, yeah. yeah. I had a PET scan um, when I was diagnosed. Um, mm. Does that help? Can you compare a PET scan today with a PET scan that was taken 11 years ago and... Um, yeah. derive some insight from that it's such a great question so actually a pet scan can mean lots of different things you can have different types of pet scans and 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 they're designed to link to particular molecules so the ones that we're looking at are linking with amyloid and tau to look at the the, the levels of those in the brain so whether we could link that with the one that you had it depends what type of pet scan mm. that you had 10 or 11 years ago mm. I, I, I was looking into something around uh, medication Adherence is a completely different mm. topic here. But one of the things that was pointed out in a research paper is that there's a correlation between um, adherence or, or lack of adherence and uh, cognitive decline. Mm. Is, is that something you've experienced? Your, your patients that are sort of declining cognitively, um, they're, they're, they're less adherent in taking their medication. That's interesting. So not always, actually. So what I found is generally people with Parkinson's are really good at taking medications i think people feel the benefits um when there's lots of different medications it it can become confusing so sometimes people will come with their family and they'll say that they're that they there is they're not totally sure if things have been taken but that's not always the case Mm. so i think so sometimes yes sometimes no but i'd be interested to read to read that paper yeah Yeah. i mean i I mean I always say having Parkinson's is like having a full-time job. And the longer it goes on, the more difficult things get. And, uh, you know, taking medication... Yeah. I, mean, I never miss a dose of medication because um, I can't afford to. But yeah. I'm not, you know, always strict at taking medication on time. I, I feel like that's, that's quite a challenge. Mm. Um, you mentioned family there. What, what's the role of family here, if, if any? Well, I think that you, you said that Parkinson's is like a job. So yeah. actually... In, in the same way, family becomes, you know, Parkinson's doesn't just affect one person, it affects the whole family. So I think look, if some people are on their own, so and that, that's then that's how life is, although hopefully they have friends who are supportive as well. But what I find is that it's really helpful when I talk to people in my clinic. I talk to the person who has Parkinson's, but I also want to hear from the wider family as well, because often they'll notice things that mm. the person themselves mm. might not mm. have noticed. This is a very general question, but uh, what kind mm. of thing would with a partner or family member notice that the a patient themselves might not bring up? So sometimes things to do with thinking and memory mm. are noticed by, by the, the family. But I have noticed in Parkinson's that people themselves also notice. Mm. 
Mm. So actually both can notice, but mm. they might they may notice slightly different things. We seem to be at a great crossroads at the moment. They're talking about AI, talking about mm. uh, scanning and, 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 and genetics. This convergence of all this information. It's, yeah. a, it's a great time to... It's probably the best time ever to have Parkinson's, isn't it? I think so. I, I do think so. I think that we're really understanding it better and we're being more, we can be more precise with different people about what type of Parkinson's. That's what I'm hoping, that with the, with the genetics and all these biomarkers that we've talked about, that actually I think that we could be more precise. And also there's new treatments are really coming, some through the Parkinson's field, but actually even through wider fields as well, there are actually n- new treatments coming on board. And what's quite likely is different treatments might be suitable for different patients as well. There's great, great brains behind it as well. You, you work here at UCL and, and yeah. at Queen Square as well. There's some incredible people in both those places. Yes, I work with brilliant people here at Queen Square. So we, we talked earlier about Tom Fultony and um, Annetta Schrag, who are doing brilliant work. And, and I work also with Christian Lambert. Um, so there's, there's great work here at, at UCL. But actually, we collaborate with people around the UK and also in the US as well. And I think we've got really much better about that. And actually, there's a big collaborative project that's being led out of UCL that's bringing in people across the whole of the UK and even the US. I'm sure that um, Tom will have talked about it. It's this multi-platform, yeah. multi-arm uh, Parkinson's trial I think platform. There was a bit of a thing with academics, wasn't it, trying to keep the, keep the, the, the research to themselves and, and then suddenly come out with a big paper. There seems yeah. to be a bit more sharing now. There's a real shift in that, and that's come partly from the funders who don't want us all to, to, to keep things to ourselves and they want us to share. And that's that's been a really positive effect. So actually, there's what we now what we're all encouraged to do is open openly share our data and work collaboratively. And that's absolutely something that we're, that that we're doing. So we're meant to and we do release our data so that other people can use it and and actually share data with other groups so it can be put into an even bigger platform. And I've done that recently with a group in in Kings, and I'm also talking with another group in Cambridge about sharing data more widely we're looking for a cure how, how far away do you think that is do you know it's amazing because actually we used to always say oh you know in around five years and I th- we've already had new treatments um, emerging so um, exenatide is, is is really is looking at changing the course of the disease and there's other treatments around so drugs like niflamapimod which is for dementia with Lewy bodies is looking really interesting and even the drugs from Alzheimer's that have been in the news about Alzheimer's, they may have application in Parkinson's as well. So I think a cure is likely to be that it won't be just one thing for everyone. It's likely to be specific for different people. But those are just three examples Mm. that are really kind of around at the moment. Mm. So I think it's a, like you say. I think it's a really exciting time to to be to be having Parkinson's. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we, we know what you mean. Um, uh, advanced treatments in Parkinson's. Yeah. So um, yeah, we mentioned before we came on air, we, we, or, or maybe we mentioned it earlier in the podcast about things like uh, DBS. Mm. Um, my understanding of DBS is, it, generally speaking, it will help control. Um, a lot of the motor symptoms, but less so the non-motor symptoms. Is it, does, does uh, dementia and cognitive uh, challenges fall into that category as well? W- will DBS do anything for, 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 for dementia? Such an interesting area. So DBS is deep brain stimulation is targeting deep nuclei of the brain. And the way that it's done very widely for Parkinson's is to treat the movement symptoms. And that's how it's done at the moment. And um, there have been trials to see if we can look, target different areas to maybe treat dementia. Um, so far, those haven't looked that promising. But actually, there are new targets that haven't, well, that are starting to be trialed that could be promising. And there's actually different ways of, of targeting deep nuclei. 
potentially with different ways of, of using ultrasound as well. So actually, I'd say um, it's a work in progress, and that actually thinking of memory symptoms could be uh, could be targeted with those sorts of approaches in in the coming okay. years. Interesting. Yeah, um, I'd like to ask you about creativity. Mm. Um, one thing I've noticed over the last uh, 10, 11 years is I've become a lot more creative. I never had a, a creative side to me before. And Parkinson's, and I don't know if it's the condition itself or, or um, the medication, the side effect of the medication is, is causing me to be well a lot more creative. And um, the way it sort of manifests is uh, photography for me. You know, I've taken over 150,000 photos on my phone the last wow. uh, uh, 11 years d- during my Parkinson's Amazing journey. Amazing, photos of you so far. You'll <laughs> be clicking away, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm always taking photos. One way or another, it's linked to my Parkinson's, that's for sure. Yeah. Is that, what does that mean for um, cognitive challenges and dementia? Is there a clue there as well? I think that's a great question. I I don't know. It's interesting that you say that, and I have heard about creativity. I've even heard people when they have hallucinations that they've that they paint and they kind of they show their hallucinations. But yeah, I mean, I think the thing with Parkinson's is that I'm constantly intrigued about how it affects the brain and how it affects people differently. Yeah, it feels like that's sort of an area of research that can be expanded a bit more because everybody Mm. I talk to with Parkinson's has developed some sort of creative creative instinct mm. um and i'm sure there's a clue there in terms of disease progression the type of parkinson's they have or what it means for, for cognitive challenges uh, is, is is anything like that coming up in your research world well so far as we talked about why we've used creative processes to open conversations mm. we haven't specifically looked at mm. them but it sounds like something that that mm. we should be doing so mm. thank you for, for mentioning <laughs> it and we'll We'll have a think about how we mm. can approach it. I'm very conscious we're running out of time now, but um, I just wonder, when, when you see inside someone's head and you see the brain, mm. it's, it's almost like a religious experience, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. It, it contains everything. Your loves, your, your, yeah. your losses, your, your personality. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, isn't it? Absolutely. When people come out the scanner, and actually we, we often say, do you want to have a look? It is amazing, and I think our generation, where well, we can actually see our brains, mm. because previous generations couldn't do that. So, yeah, and I love that you said that it's kind of really religious or spiritual to actually be able to see those different structures. I, I totally agree. It sounds like you, you're very passionate about this area. Your enthusiasm comes across a lot. To, it's, it's very reassuring that uh, there's people like you that are in this field for, for what, as we said at the beginning, quite, quite a daunting subject for a lot of people with Parkinson's. So, uh, people, people like us need people like you. So thanks, oh. thanks so much for all the work you do. It's brilliant. Oh, thank you. Long may it continue. Thank, thank you very you. much for a minute. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks. Fascinating insight into the world of dementia there from Ramona Weil. And what an amazing woman. What an incredible re- bit of research she's doing as well. Yeah, um, I mean, that, that whole story about how that capture thing came along and how the link to vision I thought was fascinating. The fact that somebody observed that uh, people filling in letters on those uh, internet forms uh, to identify yourself, um, there was a link to uh, vision and, and, and dementia. And that's how that research came along. Uh, fascinating world. I want everyone involved in listening to this now to, to get involved in the research as well because if you make it to London five times next year, 2024, and get involved, it would be fantastic. We're going to have a big two parks in a pod, voluntary research. You have to go under a scanner, you have to have blood tests and stuff, but it's not a big deal. Mm. And she's, she's a great woman. You, you, you get some great time with a great person. Yeah, and, and she's re- worth doing, wouldn't it? recruiting for trial participants at the moment. So, so we'll leave links in, in the show notes. What were your takeaways from that? Well, it, it's such a complex area. You know, I, I didn't expect things like vision to play such an important role. 
the different types of dementia I thought was quite interesting, but a bit confusing. You know, you've got Louis body dementia, and then you've got dementia with Louis bodies. You yeah. know? I don't think we help ourselves with some of this terminology. I think we just um, need to simplify it somewhat, but it is a complex area. It seems to be an area that, you know, there's a number of breakthroughs, a lot of promising research, and some of it linked to the Alzheimer's stuff, um, which I thought was quite interesting. I like the fact you said you like being the Sherlock Holmes of neuroscience. Really good, really cool. <laughs> It is somewhat like that. You're hunting for clues, aren't you? It's like a, you know, if it's a problem that can be solved um, and it just needs some great minds, then, um, you know, I think we're in good hands with, with the likes of Ramona. Very good hands. All right, time for a bit of this. We're starting off with a lovely Ted Lasso star, Hannah Waddingham. Her mum made a surprise appearance on her Apple TV Christmas special. Melody Kelly, has Parkinson's, was an opera singer. She turned up at the Coliseum in London to be serenaded by her daughter during the show. It's, it's a great little thing, that. Very Christmassy. Oh, right. There's actually another Ted Lasso connection to, to Parkinson's. I'm, I'm not sure if it's in the public domain, but um, if you Google it, uh, m- m- maybe you'll, you'll find it. All right. You've been trying to make everyone Sherlock Holmes as well. <laughs> we raise it. Oh, hang on. We'll do this. <laughs> We raise a glass to the Parky who completed her target of walking 400 kilometres over 40 weeks before turning 40. Ellen Finch Hume, alias PD Mama on Twitter, was diagnosed with Parkinson's at age 29. Well done. Excellent. Uh, well done, Ellie. I've been following your posts and um, it's, it's very inspirational. People with Parkinson's do amazing things. A huge two Parkinson's pod. Congratulations to the Parky golfers who completed in the Sport Parkinson's Four Nations Cup of the Belfry. 40 Parky golfers teed off at the former Ryder Cup venue after two days of fierce competition. Team Wales won the trophy. Well done, Team Wales. Well done, Wales. Speaking of honours, football keepy-uppy champion Joe Gregory was given a Parkinson's UK Community Award. Joe's superhuman feats include doing keepy-uppies for the entire 26.2 miles of the London Marathon. Amazing. Amazing. If you haven't seen some of his videos, uh, uh, check them out. Maybe we'll leave leave another link. It was also Joe's birthday uh, yesterday as well, so happy 65th. Yeah. Officially a pension now. (laughs) Get his bus pass. He probably won't thank us for revealing his age. And it's with great pride that we can tell you that Neil Russell has won a Pride of Britain award. Neil was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2018. He ran London to Barcelona to raise funds and awareness for Cure Parkinson's and Parkinson's UK. Some guy. Amazing. That that was running to the World Parkinson's Congress, right? Yeah. Oh, incredible. Wow. Don't forget, if you want to get involved and do something amazing, drop us a line. Please do, yeah. Uh, go to twoparkinsonapod.com where you can send us a message there and you can listen to all the previous episodes or reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. We post some silly things there if you want to go and take a look. And um, if you're on Apple or Spotify or one of those podcast platforms, feel free to subscribe, rate and review us. That would be much appreciated. Lovely to hear from you. That's it from us. We'll see you next time. All right, see you.